<laughs> All right. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. My name is Steve Fredland, and I'm joined by the panel. We got Chris Jones, Jim Reed, John Somsky, and Rob Washam uh, with us tonight. And shout out, thanks to our official sponsor, Running Aces Racetrack Casino and Hotel, and our other podcast sponsors, Learn Pro Poker and Website Amp. This is episode 170, and today we have an opportunity to talk to Bernard Lee, who is the host of the Bernard Lee Poker Show. Uh, before we do that, a couple of really quick announcements. Our, our Bar League communities and our home game communities have launched uh, incredible value, super low pricing. You can get your home game connected for 40 bucks for a year, your Bar League for 100 bucks a year, tons of great benefits. Go to rec.poker, check that out. Uh, that pricing is available until March 31st. Uh, and we've also launched programs for ambassadors, affiliates, champions, and friends. Just hit us up if you have any questions. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let's get into the interview that we had with Bernard Lee. All right, well, guys, uh, as promised, we are here with Bernard Lee. And if you don't know who Bernard Lee is, you're about to find out. And if you're not connected with Bernard Lee, you need to get connected. So, Bernard, how are we doing? Where are you calling in from? Let's start there. Uh, well, I live in the Boston area. I grew up in New York um, and came up here for college and basically have never left. <laughs> it's a simple story. Yeah, it basically is. I mean, we New England, up here in New England, um, uh, was fortunate enough uh, to have a deep run in 2005 at the World Series main event. Um, got a lot of TV coverage. If people remember back in 2005 when Joe Hashim won, Aussie, 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 oi, 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 <laughs> if you remember that. Um, you might remember somebody who was uh, very excitable, had a picture of his kids and would kiss his kids all the time and an all in. Well, that's me. And um, I, for better or worse, parlayed that 13th place finish. Um, and <clears throat> at the time, if you remember, there weren't many, um, there wasn't much media. There were podcasts weren't around, you know, the, there was a lot of reporting that uh, people did, but uh, not as, as uh, abundant as it is now. And next thing you know, the Boston Herald contacted me, ESPN contacted me. Uh, I've written for Card Player, written for Poker News, um, Card Player Lifestyle now. I've written for a, bun a bunch of um, uh, journals in the Boston area as well. Um, when I had my deep run in 2005, Poker Stars, who I qualified with, asked me to kind of write about my experience. And <clears throat> what they thought was going to be two pages ended up being about 26 single space pages. And <laughs> it was just really like cathartic experience to kind of get it out. And it, um, it became at the time as viral as viral can be. And that's kind of how I got contacted by all these media outlets saying, Hey, you write pretty well. Would you be interested in, in writing for us? And I kind of went, really? Okay. And next thing you know, 15 years later, I'm still doing this, uh, playing professionally and also doing a lot of the media stuff. So you were at the time you were playing professionally, but you'd not been involved in the media side of it at all or no, no, I've yeah. never done media whatsoever. Uh, in all honesty, in 2005, I wasn't even a professional. I was still working full time. Um, I, um, uh, was working for a biomedical device company. I was, um, senior, manager and director level of uh, marketing and new business development. Um, I was managing uh, relationships and companies in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's kind of, I enjoyed it. I went to business school uh, and really enjoyed my work there. I've worked there for almost 10 years and 
really no thought about leaving, just went to the World Series of Poker because obviously you, you hear so much about it. 2003, when Moneymaker did what he did, I wasn't really jumping on the poker bandwagon. I was jumping on the tournament bandwagon. Um, really tried to qualify in 2004, um, did not succeed, uh, was really disappointed, to be honest, did not play in 2004, and then in 2005 was able to qualify uh, online uh, on a satellite through um, uh, Poker Stars. And next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the deepest run for any qualifier for Poker Stars. And so now we got the Bernard Lee show. Uh, what, what are some of the other things that you got going on right now? I know your fingers are on a ton of different things. You got some charity work. Uh, what's, what's kind of the life look like right now for you? Well, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I think that I am one of those few people that play professionally. I, I still play it an absolute ton. Um, and I'm about to head back out. My, my son and my daughter are very active in sports um, in the, in the winter. My son is still in the, uh, state finals uh we're in the state final four right now so it's pretty crazy um uh and so we're excited about that really excited about that and uh we'll see how far that goes and then i hit the road um for the next six weeks i'm on the road four of them um i haven't played in a few months uh, so i'm excited to get back out on the road and then i'm back home for about six weeks because the kids are back playing spring sports. Uh, my son is captain of the tennis team. My daughter is going to be on the softball team. And so I'll be basically going from sport to sport to sport to sport. And then next thing you know, it's the World Series, right? And then we'll be, we'll be heading over there. So it, it, it's very exciting for me because I'm able to play professionally, but I'm also able to work on the media side uh, at, at a fair, very high level, working with ESPN and as I said, Poker News and, and Card Player Lifestyle with my podcast. And we're going to be celebrating our 13th anniversary in a couple of months. Uh, we're actually in the works of finalizing up a couple more interviews. We've already done one or two interviews of some really, really special guests. Can't announce them just yet, but needless to say, uh, one of the guests that we have, he doesn't, he hasn't done an interview in probably over a decade. And so we we're very fortunate that we we're able to get him. Oh, very cool, man. That that's awesome. So we've we've been joined here also by John Somskin, Rob Washam. So any of you guys have any questions, feel free to to unmute there, and I'll I'll uh, I'll plug you in there. Uh, but Bernard, as you kind of think about you know all the stuff that you do and, and playing as well, you know, as, as you look at the recreational player, like what is this overall advice that you'd have for a rec player? I know that's it's a horribly broad question, but uh, as you and I have talked about, our audience is primarily. Uh, recreational players, primarily those that are playing in the in a less experienced sort of realms of things. But as we're approaching the game, as we're saying, okay, we want to be better, but we have limited time, we have limited budget. What's what's a piece of advice that you would give all of us who are sort of pursuing this this poker dream as it makes sense and as we have time on the side? Um, so I do a lot of work. I, I, I do a lot of private tutoring. I do a lot of group tutoring. I've worked. I've been. Uh, trainer for the WSOP uh, Academy, WPT Bootcamp. Uh, and I do a lot of stuff with rec players still. Um, and I get this question, to be honest, a lot. And what I would say first and foremost is find people who love poker as much as you do, but find people who are two things. One, that play differently than you. And two, who are better than you. And when I say that statement, 
The other thing I would say is you have to humble yourself. There are just the people who come up to me and say, you know, every time I play a tournament, I final table it. I just can't get, you know, I, I just don't understand why I can't play professionally. You're, you're not being realistic. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean in that statement. I'm just, you have to be honest with yourself. People who are doing that aren't writing down their statistics and saying, wow, you know what? I, I actually only final tabled once every nine tournaments. And when you do final table those nine, there's only 40 people. So you're really not final tabling. You're getting past the final 25%. You have to be honest with yourself to improve. And if you're not honest with yourself, you'll remain a rec player. And to be honest, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a derogatory statement. If you feel like I'm playing because I want to just enjoy myself, this is not about me, quote unquote, getting better. This is not about me trying to win a World Series bracelet. I want to go out. I want to have a beer. I want to have fun. It's like anybody else going and playing pool or going and playing, going bowling or going to the movies or whatever it is. This is their fun. And if that's what they want to do, and it's not about becoming a top-level player, there's nothing – who says that you have to do that? If you want to enjoy yourself and you want to have fun and you want to chase you know, a, a gut shot straight because that's fun when I bad beat somebody, I have no problem with that at all. In all honesty, that's why I still make a living. But you know, I, I, I think that if you are that person who wants to get better and really truly feels like they can get better – then you have to be honest with yourself. You can't just fool yourself saying that, oh, I just get unlucky all the time. You don't. You, you, you really have to look at why things are going there. What are your leaks? And that's why I say find people who play differently than you. If you're a tight, aggressive player, find someone who's loose. If you're a very loose, aggressive, loose player, find someone who's tight. And then on top of that, find people who are better than you because you don't need to have a group of players who are not as good as you and then all they say is yes, yes, yes to all your answers because they really don't know if your answer is wrong or not and they respect your game. You want to be able – you know, I'm very fortunate that uh, I talk to some of the best players in the world every single week for my radio show, and a lot of these players have become my really good friends. Um, I'm fortunate that I can call Jason Mercier and ask him a question. I can call Blair Hinkle. Um, uh, you know, I can call Daniel Agrano if I have a question on something. And there's no way I could ever think that those that I'm better than these players. And for me to ask them a, a sincere question and to get an answer back has improved my game immensely. Think of that level for a rec player. Find somebody who is of that caliber compared to you. I'm not talking about talk to Daniel LeGrand. I'm talking about find somebody in your league or maybe who plays in the circuit out in Minnesota who, who, who goes to the casinos and plays in maybe an MSBT or a Heartland or something like that and has had success. That's how you're going to get better. Sorry, a long answer, but hopefully that, that – Well, no, it's, it's, it's a great answer. I mean, I see it all the time. Um, you know, I'm certainly not in the category of somebody that can give everybody advice, but, you know, hosting the podcast, I get approached a lot by people – uh, who start talking about, you know, their, their streak of bad luck or whatever it might be. And you just start asking those questions of them. And what you find out is there's sort of a sense of entitlement there right. and an unwillingness to be humble and actually look at their, look at their game in a real self assessment sort of way. And I do think that's a huge stumbling block for a lot of recreational players 
if you're if you're unwilling, I, I think there's sort of this idea that I play perfectly, and if I wasn't ever for bad luck, I'd win every single tournament. And I think that's just an unrealistic idea. But I also think it stunts their growth uh, as a player. And so that's always my encouragement too: is be humble, be transparent, find people around you that you're willing to be authentic with uh, and learn from. I think that's great advice. You, you have to almost assume that you made, no matter what happens, you made the mistake. Now, how can I correct that mistake? What did mm-hmm. I do wrong? And I'll be honest with you, that's the really the way I approach it. When I did, when I have a question, I'll go and I'll ask somebody and I'll say like, did I do something wrong here? Like, what did I, and, yeah. and, and I don't need to have them say no, but I'd like for them to say, oh, you could have done this. I remember once at uh, PCA, Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure, I just, I felt like the guy had one of two hands. Again, I, it's, I'd have to sit here and describe the whole hand, but I really felt like he had one of two hands. And when we got to the river, he either had me beat or he didn't, right? That was basically what it came down to. But I felt like I had to get some value if I was correct. And I didn't know how to bet it. I was really, you know, should I bet? Should I not? I ended up checking and he ended up checking behind me and I ended up winning the pot. And I went up to Nick Binger, who if people don't know, he's a brother of Michael Binger, bracelet winner, and he actually runs a WPT boot camp now. And explained the whole situation, described the whole thing, and he said, did you think about this? And I will tell you, I was like, I never would have thought about that. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff. Blair Hinkle, he plays such a different style than I, than I do. And I asked him, constantly we're very good friends where he's also a run good ambassador like myself run good gear ambassador and we talk a lot uh, about how to play certain styles because he plays a different style than i do and i learned so much i i literally i people may i literally have a couple of pages of notes just from him about talking uh, over time he probably doesn't even know i take the notes specifically but i keep them i i refer back to them um, Jason Mercier and I, like I said, have talked about specifically deuce to seven a lot because that's a game that we both love. And, and, uh, you know, again, I, I'm not trying, you know, I'm not trying to drop the mic and, and name drop all the time. That's not my point. It's just more of find someone that you respect 100%. And if they tell you something that you don't agree upon, don't dismiss it. Maybe mm-hmm. it's something that you haven't thought about and maybe you should try it. Yeah, it's so good. I was I was calling. I called Daniel Negreanu every day, and we talk poker. And you know, just the other day, I'm kidding. Just the other day, you know, I said, "Well, is there anything I can do for you?" And he said, "Well, you could have Bernard Lee stop calling me and asking me questions." <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Yeah. Uh, so uh, John Sonsky. Uh Yeah, uh, I was wondering. So one of the the problems or issues you can run into when you're talking with someone who is much better than you in poker is there are a lot of pieces of your game that kind of fit together and and build upon each other so what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another and you yourself being a professional you're able to understand the reasons why a play might work for someone and understand whether or not that would fit into your game. How can the recreational players do that same thing, understanding that you know the reason that they 
that you make small bets so often is so that you can bet more often. But if you're only going to bet the nuts, then you don't want to make such small bets. You know, those types of things sure. where there's more going on than just that single play in isolation. Well, I think that's a really good point. And what a lot of amateurs and a lot of rec players do is they get to that final step right away. So they'll be like, okay, so let me tell you about this hand. So after we got to the turn and I'm like, wait a second, we haven't described the hand at all. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but, but the flop and the, 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 that's unimportant. It's really the turn and river that are important. I, 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 so <laughs> what you often realize is, is that what you're saying there is that they are so focused on the end sometimes they're so focused on one aspect of the hand and when i talk to a lot of amateurs when i teach a lot of people is that i go all the way backwards in time and i think that when you talk to a, a player who's better than yourself you really have to break it down from the beginning and when my students when we first start talking a lot of times this will be a typical hand that they'll say so i was playing in a tournament uh we i i was i, I somebody raised and I called them. Uh, we saw a flop. After that flop, he raised. I re-raised them. He shoved all in. I didn't know what to do. I mean, that's a very common way of people saying. Maybe they described what hand they had. Maybe they described the flop. And as they do that, I say, stop. Okay, let's go through everything step by step. So the player raised. Where did they raise from? Under the gun, the button, from mid-position. How many chips did they have? What did they raise? Did they raise 2x? Did they raise 4x? Were they raising this amount the same way throughout the entire tournament? Or have they changed their betting pattern on this specific hand? Where were you sitting? Were you in position? Were you out of position? Were you in one of the blinds? It, I mean, that's pre-flop. We haven't even finished pre-flop yet, but I could probably go on for another two or three minutes. That's what people have to understand, that there's more than just the end answer. There is so much more. And, and a lot of times when we go through all of that, I will tell them, you shouldn't have played the hand. And so all of this stuff in the turn on the river is, is a moot point. We can talk about it. You want to talk about it? We'll talk about that. But you shouldn't have even gotten to that point because you should have folded. Or you should have three bet and the person would have folded. You, you see what I'm saying? So like... I think that too many people um, focus on, I need the answer to this situation and the, 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 the mistake or the scenario that happened. I think they need to break it down a little bit more. And if they're, if they're able to find somebody who is, as I said, better than them or more knowledgeable than them or have a different style, and they are willing to have that patience and go through all of that, then you can break down the game very, very easily. And, and you know, I mean, this what I would say is invest in this, right? Find somebody and say, I'll take you to dinner. Treat them to a really nice steak at a casino. I'm telling you, they'll be like, sure, okay. I will sit and chat for an hour. Why not? It will be enlightening and you will be amazed. If you don't walk out of there saying, wow, I never thought about all that, then A, you're fooling yourself or B, you didn't pick the right person. <laughs> Uh, so that's so good. I love that question, John, too. That's fantastic, Bernard. Uh, great answer. Uh, I know you've got uh, you got to run in a couple minutes here because you need to get your son to his final four practice or something <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. going on. But uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Uh, I know you when last time you and I chatted, you talked a bit about some of the, the nonprofit charitable work that you're doing. Uh, so you got a couple minutes, whether you want to talk about that or anything else. 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that I appreciate it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I would always say also in the world of poker is that we always, you know, it's all about win, 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 take, 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 take. And, and I've just been very fortunate that I've been able to give back a little bit to the community. I do a charity program here in Boston called the Full House Charity Program. Obviously, you get the the double entendre from from what I'm referring to of in poker, but we, we take care of um, homeless families in the Boston area. I've been doing it for nine nine years, and we basically give them a customized gift list uh, for Christmas. They give us their requests, and so we we customize everything. We don't just here's a ball for everyone, here's crayons for everyone. We really customize it for everyone. We've spent over a hundred thousand uh, dollars during our time. This is our tenth anniversary this year, so we're really excited about that. Um, and then I also do a lot of work for the One Step Closer Foundation, which is a organization that works with cerebral palsy um, and other afflictions. The gentleman who, uh, who founded it actually uh, has cerebral palsy, and for him to uh, want to help others in his situation is just really amazing. So uh, fortunate if you're there at the World Series this summer, we're going to have a tournament there at the Aria. We have one usually in December. Um, and uh, you can stay tuned. I'm going to be uh, on my website launching kind of a, uh, um, a store, but the store really will be uh, my books that, I'm, uh, that I have, uh, some T-shirts that Run Good Gear uh, has made up, but all the proceeds are going to go to my charity. So uh, anybody who buys any of those, and, and I'm coming out with a new book uh, through DMB Publishing uh, this summer, all on satellite play. Uh, so hopefully that you know that'll help raise more funds for it, and we can help more families. Yeah, so when you and I talked, at, you know, at length, I mean, just your, your heart for that and, and the impact that you've had is is staggering, and it's one of the reasons why we're super excited. We announced a few weeks ago that you know we're partnering with you and with Robbie Straczynski, uh to be part of the Card Player Lifestyle family of podcasts, and uh, you know your your passion for uh, helping others who aren't as fortunate is is infectious. Yeah, and that's a very attractive piece for us here at Rec Poker. Well, appreciate it. What I'm really excited, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about this offline. What I'm really excited about is partnering up and, and uh, you know, doing some charity work and, and maybe linking it up with uh, your groups, whether it's at the World Series, uh, whether it's even me coming into uh, like Minnesota or other areas as well. And and uh, doing potentially some trainings and then doing some charity work and maybe some charity tournaments, uh, things like that. I'm, I love to teach. I absolutely love to teach. And, and it's something that's very passionate. When I do it, when I go to Run Good Gear stops, uh, I've done uh, over a dozen training sessions literally for free uh, to really kind of excite the group that, that has come in. So uh, as I said, we're really excited to be partnering up with you as well. And we're excited to um, potentially work through and, and get these uh, these uh, meetings together. And, and hopefully we'll uh, be able to meet everyone uh, that, that's listening to your podcast. For sure. Yeah, we're going to really, we're going to test your commitment by having you come to Minnesota in January as well. That's kind of the, the current plan I, right now. I, I, I grew up. I grew up in New York. I actually, my my company, away way my company. We used to go to Minnesota because one of our big plants was there, and uh -huh. I was there in December and January multiple times. So oh, I know man. it's I know it's a dry cold, so it's <laughs> right. not as bad. But I do remember one gentleman who was my boss. He used to he had to live in Minnesota for a couple of years because they transferred him out there and then brought him back to Boston. And he said, "There's two seasons in Minnesota." He says, "There's winter and June." 
And I, and I just kind of <laughs> laughed when he said that. I said, uh, so I, 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 I'm more than happy to. If it all works out, I'd be more than happy to. I thought the two were winter and road construction, but I guess that, <laughs> that'll, that'll do yeah. as well. Well, I know you've got to run. Uh, thanks for your time. Sorry it was so short. We'll have you on uh, more at length to talk more strategy in the future. But uh, our folks needed to hear from you and kind of hear a little bit more about this guy that we're connected with. And uh, good luck to your son in the Final Four and all that jazz as well. Well, I appreciate it. Maybe what we'll do is that my book is going to be launched at the World Series this summer. And maybe uh, you, can, you can gather up some satellite questions from your ah, um, love it. your listeners. And then maybe we can uh, go through some of those satellite questions. And the best satellite question that we get, uh, we'll give uh, them a free book. That sounds good. Jim is already raising his hand. He's going to come up with the best questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start writing them down right now, Bernard. I can't wait. There you go. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Welcome to the family. Uh, we are super excited. Uh, we have actually uh, really drummed up a lot of interest already, and, and Robbie and I are really happy that uh, we've, we've uh, brought another uh, great podcast to the family. Fantastic. Take care, Bernard. Thank you. See you guys. All right. Well, that was fantastic uh, talking with Bernard. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with uh, a hand history led by Chris Jones. All right. Well, the running aces players of the week for last week, Dave Elke, Brian Knoop, Al Anderson, and Bernie Conkey. Uh, we had some binks out on Discord. Kevin Kelsenberg had a bink in Las Vegas. Josh Schwartz in Colorado. Rob Washam, the great Rob Washam, still on fire. Grand Casino Malax. Nels Peterson in his FPN league. And Cheyenne Bhattacharya down at Canterbury Park. Way to go, Cheyenne, binking it up for the Rec Poker Nation. We've also got a bunch of new, exciting affiliates, ambassadors, champions. Uh, Josh Schwartz, who I think we mentioned is uh, championing our cause as our Colorado ambassador. Woody Adams is bringing it up in Pennsylvania. We're excited to have him on board. Hey, Woody. Uh, Woody. Uh, we've got our first set of official affiliates. Robbie Straczynski, our good friend from Card Player Lifestyle. And Chris Goose Ragoose. I can't wait to get to know this guy better. Um, and we, our first friend of the podcast, Lena Evans and the Poker League of Nations. We're really excited to be working with her to get uh, the word out um, on both of our uh, behalfs. We've got uh, new home game community members, the Epic Poker League in Big Lake, Minnesota. The, ho the host, Vic Swanson. Thank you, Vic. And the Twisted Aces home game in Thornton, Colorado, brought to us by Terry Bowers. Way to go, Terry, and welcome to the group. Our very first new Bar League community member, and this is the Shack Littleton in Littleton, Colorado. So great work, everybody, getting those together. I can't wait to see how we all get to celebrate some success together here at Rec Poker Nation. Uh, we have uh, Patty98, Mike Patrick, won his third Rec Poker home game. So we've only had six games. He's won the first two, or five games, actually, so far. He won the first two uh, mixed game tournaments, and now he's shown that he not only can play mixed games, but can also play uh, No Limit Hold'em. And uh, Steve, I have to let you know that he is Canadian. I know. Beast mode, man. Like, this is getting real. Maybe the WSOP will be canceled, and I won't, I'll be off the highway. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Uh, anyway, uh, we're having five guard draw on March 11th. That's our next mixed game tournament. So let's all see if we can play in someone other than Mike Patrick can win. Right. And, uh, in terms of member content coming up, um, we've got, uh, the March content, uh, that, uh, has been 
we've done is the opponent ranging and player typing. Um, it's a really good uh, segment, and we're working on our April content, which is going to be all about odds and stack-to-pot ratio and bet sizing. And uh, if the WSOP gets canceled, we'll have a video-only segment of member-only content. Uh, sing along with Steve. Nice. Yes, yes, we have to. That's right. I you know, agree. the little bouncing ball. We'll do that. It'll be great. Right. <laughs> I love it. Well, the one thing about the content, I, I got asked the other day by a couple of people actually, how do I get those seminars? Uh, you, have, you need to be a Rec Poker member to get that. So go to the website rec poker, check it out, or shoot us an email. We'll we'll let you know. You can get a thirty day free trial out there. All right. So um, actually, this is a. Uh, uh, this is who I want to be when I grow up. I want to be Ku Vang when I grow up on right? my poker uh, thing. And so I, I b- was watching um, some of the main event uh, replays, uh, and there's a couple of hands. I don't know if we c- can do both of them or just one of them, but I'll start with them. They're both Ku uh, Vang hands, and they're played back-to-back. Um, and um, I'm just kind of curious what the panel thinks of it. I was I was impressed with uh, some of the lines he took here, and I think it's it's a good example of how you accumulate chips um, and how you avoid losing big chips um, in spots that aren't as sort of maybe big or you know sexy as some of the biggest spots that we often see in sort of these hand recaps so that's kind of why i brought them so anyway um we're in the main event um it's day two um we and we're playing from kuvang's perspective um it folds to us and we're in the small blind so this is a blind versus blind hand um we're at the 600 1200 1200 level uh, and we have 69K behind us. Um, and we have Ace of Spades, Nine of Clubs. And um, I'd be curious what what uh, what people would do with this hand before I tell you what, what Ku did. How many, how many uh, bigs does the big blind have? What's oh, situation? sorry. Uh, the big blind has us ex- almost exactly the same amount of chips. I think the big blind has... Uh, or uh, like sixty nine five, sixty nine thousand five hundred. So oh, they cover us by like five hundred chips. So we're like fifty five big blinds deep each year. Yep, yep. I, you know, my natural inclination. I, I saw your notes on it, but my natural inclination would be to raise this. And if you're raising it, what are you raising it to? From a from a small blind to big blind. Yeah, I'm going to probably go like 3,500. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a two plus normally if I'm in position and, you know, getting close to three. I don't mind just taking this down right here. I feel like that puts enough pressure. So I'm going to probably go to close to 3x, 3,500. Uh, it helps me to find my opponent's range a little bit better than, you know, sort of going to 2,500 where I know they're going to complete with almost their entire range or they're going to call. And I'm so anyone want to advocate? So I'm I'm often completing with this hand, um, and uh, it's a it's a type of hand that I'm going to actually complete and then continue um, a lot on the flop. With um, I find that you can run um, that it's a type of hand that you don't want to play too big with. Um, and so I and I like having um, some aces in my sort of in having a wider range from the small blind to continue with um, by completing with most of my range. That so you're underrepresenting your underrepresenting your hand a little bit as well. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah i I don't necessarily mind that, but I think my default position in the small blind 
is to uh, not complete ever. Hmm. Uh, hmm. So I basically I don't play it if I can't raise, um, and I'm not I'm not sure that that's right. Uh, you know, it might be right to have a, a limiting range, but in my in my philosophy, it, I'd be raising everything, and this would fall within Ace Nine would fall within my raising range. Yeah, we were talking about this at the uh, membership Q&A a couple of weeks ago, uh, different ways to approach the small blind, whether you're playing heads up where you're going to be in position uh, post-flop or whether you're just at a standard size tournament where you're going to be out of position on both streets. And uh, there, was, there was no consensus. There was a great deal of variety of opinions about whether to have a, a, a completing range, whether only to open raise from the small blind when it folds to you. and um, I know, Chris, you were talking about predominantly uh, having a uh, completing range there, um, whereas I feel like I, I just find it so hard to balance that as well as balancing an opening range that I sort of, it's just as you said it, Chris, uh, you, you're able to define your opponent's range, or maybe it was John, um, define your opponent's range more clearly when you see their response to that two and a half or three X open from the small blind. Um, but I'm I'm very curious about this this subject because this is something that trips me up all the time, and uh, I don't know how to read it in other players either. Like, what are their completing ranges look like in the small blind? So, um, Chris, would, do you have an opening range in this spot and a completing range, or, or do you typically just complete with a hundred percent and then play it from there? It it'll be very player dependent. Um, if I if I think my opponent is. Uh, folding too much is too if i've seen them be too tight with their big blind even if it's not small blind versus big blind um i'm gonna start opening more um but if i see them defending a lot i'm gonna complete more um my default uh without any knowledge this is the first hand of the tournament um i'm completing um almost my entire range um i may work in a few raises with really um some of my strongest holdings and some of my more speculative hands like the like a a jack 10 suited might might work its way into a raising range whereas um but i'm i'm mostly completing um from the small blind i think what you're talking about uh being villain dependent is probably the most important part of that concept because you're going to be out of position so much and uh one of the one of the best outcomes when you open from the small blind is they fold and you get to move on to the next hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're not going to be that, if they're not that kind of villain, then I could see a, a strong argument for completing much more often and just opening with those that tight, even tight and polarized range. Right. I'm, yeah. This. Go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, being player dependent, I thought made a lot of sense there too. But it's kind of interesting in that at least in most of the tournaments I'm playing in, this isn't a situation that comes up very often because it's not very often that it's actually available for you to open from the small blind. So it tends to be more of this position where it's already been opened. And then I, I think I'm much more comfortable saying, you know, being in the have a hand you can raise or fold range, whereas opening is just a completely different dynamic. Yeah, to to be clear, I really don't like calling 
behind an open from the small blind very much. That is a hand that I'm going to do with very few hands. I'm going to be doing that with some of my smaller pairs um, and maybe some premiums just to sort of balance that out, but primarily smaller pairs, um, hoping to get to a flaw, cheap flop and give my chance. I think I've got the odds, if I've got the odds and there's stacks in play where I can set mine, but otherwise, um, any hand that I'm continuing with, um, I am three betting from the small blind after an open. I'm curious. This this might this is going to totally derail the conversation. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't care. Um, so well, I do care, but just a little bit. Well, I'm kind of curious, like like I because I think I'm I'm prone to doing this, and I think other recreational players are prone to doing this. So I think it's worth a comment. Like we say a lot about okay, it's villain dependent, and I think what like like if you see somebody who folds, like if somebody's folding their big blind too much, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are about how that changes the range of hands that you raise. I think what happens in a lot of our minds is they, they fold too much. So I'm going to start raising everything. Like I'm going to raise, I'm going to move from raising 15% of the hands out of the small blind to 90% of the hands because they fold too much. And so I think we take it too far, I think. And I'm just kind of curious what your perspectives are on when you say my default is to raise or my default is to call or whatever the villain dependency there, like how much does it actually change your range? Does it just, does it add a few more combos that you'll now raise? Or are you like, is it doubling like how many hands you're going to raise? Or does it even matter what you have at that point? Like, I'm really curious how to adjust there. For me, in this case, it would be about not necessarily changing the range that I'm continuing with. Um, Cause I will fold to the big blind too, if I have absolute garbage in this spot, but, what it changes for me is whether I'm completing or raising. And if I see them folding too much in this spot, that's where I'm going to, then anything that I was thinking, Oh, this is a continue or I want to flatten and see where we see where we land. uh, I'm going to start opening that more from the small blind, because I think it's quite likely I'm going to take it down more of the time. And if I get played back at, I have a real sense of what they're playing back at me with. Right. So you're not sitting there going, okay, let's say, I don't know what your range is, but let's say 10, three of clubs, you're just going to give a walk to, uh, you're not going, oh, they, they fold more than they should. So now I'm going to raise 10, three of clubs. That's not part of your thought process. I'm likely not, but that <laughs> might be a mistake. Well, right. I'm just wondering, like, cause I, I do feel like I'm prone to do that and get myself in weird situations. And I think others are too, cause we keep hearing, oh, it's villain dependent. If they fold too much, you should do that. I, I feel like generally rec players take it too far i'm just curious your thoughts what i, I mean what I'm, I, I'm more likely so go ahead rob i was just going to say what i tend to do is if i have a face card i'll raise right any i could have jack deuce it doesn't matter as long as i have a face card i'm going to raise a player that's going to fold too often i might complete with some you know small pocket pairs like chris was talking about just to see if i could see a flop cheap um, Potentially suited connectors or even a 10-8 offsuit could be a raise against that type of player, but it's got to have some sort of equity of some sort, right? Um, so any face card, like uh, any connected, two connected cards that are, you know, seven or higher, I'll probably, you know, go in for a raise. I do complete some of the small pairs and then I fold everything, all the rest of the junk. 
And, so, you are, and I, so you are expanding your range a little. Sorry, Jim. So you are expanding no, no, your please. range a little yeah. bit, Rob. Like, yes. If they yes. Pull, so you are still, you are actually not just changing calls to raises. You're actually expanding your raising range. Right. Yep. Right. Okay. And th th that Jack Deuce is never a call. In a normal situation, that would be a fold. Mm -hmm. If the guy is defending a lot, I'm not going to raise Jack Deuce. But if the guy is not defending and he's folding a lot of his big blinds to any open, then I'm going to raise with any pace card. Right. Just because I got a little bit of something, something anyway. <laughs> I got Jack Deuce, baby. Yeah, let's I roll. Jack, I got let's a Jack. go, baby. Let's go. <laughs> I got a Jack. I know my flopper Jack. I'm way good. No, I, no, that's, I tend to be in your camp as well. I tend to open my range uh, a bit too. Yeah. It, against that particular opponent, if we're talking about someone that's going to overfold the big blind, then I'd, I'd expand my opening range to include a bunch of junky blocker hands. Um, so like basically any king or queen suited or unsuited that I wasn't opening before now is going to be in my opening range because I think we're going to get more folds um, having that blocker. And, uh, and as Rob is saying, when you get – at one point you get to the point where you're not really playing them. You're not really opening those hands in order to play them on the flop anymore. You're really just kind of opening them to give your opponent an opportunity to make the error that you've identified that they make too often, which is folding the big blind. So once you've not achieved that goal, um, I'm not like the playability of the hand is important, but it's almost differently important uh, than the stated goal of getting them to fold. I think blockers are important for that too. So I don't mind if it's like queen two offsuit um, because I'm not really trying to make a hand, I'm especially not out of position like this against a wide range. That's not going to be easy to, to uh, range. So uh, yeah, I like, I like Rob's face card um, equity. And I think also the, the blocker aspect of it makes it really valuable for that. Yeah, and, and I would as Rob says, you would never call with those hands. So they're not there to get to the flop and make a hand. They're there to give your opponent the opportunity to fold. It's sort of that finding that equilibrium, right? The, the Nash equilibrium where if you know that they're going to fold every hand except pocket aces, you should raise 100% of your range. You know, if you know that they're going to call everything, you know, you might change some things there too. But there's sort of that, okay, how far are they willing to go? Uh, and you kind of got to find how far you can open then. See, Chris, that didn't derail at all. We're so all right. perfectly on topic. So, so here we are, pre-flop. Uh, <laughs> uh, we got, as a reminder, we're we're in the main event. Or, uh, oh yeah, are we talking about a hand here? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so uh, we have ace of spades, nine of clubs, and we have completed uh, to the twelve hundred. Um, and the big blind now uh, raises to forty-two hundred. Um. And so this is a, you know, kind of the situation we probably weren't totally hoping to see, but I think once we, you know, I think a hand like ACE nine is one that I'm probably continuing with, uh, not loving this spot, but I'm at least going to see, see a flop, um, especially kind of at this stack depth. Um, but is anyone considering folding this here? Is there a stack depth where you'd consider three bet folding this when he, when the big blind raises your limp, just be, because it's got that ace blocker and it's not very playable post flop. Interesting. I question. hate playing it. Like I don't really want to play the hand, but it's got a lot of equity. Yeah, I mean, I think you're at a depth where you could do that if that was your play. You know, you make make this fourteen, you know, and then you fold. You still got fifty five behind or whatever it is. I think you, I think you could pull it off 
at this depth or a little bit higher. I think it looks pretty strong when you do that. I, I do think in one manner or another, if I if I flat here, uh, I'm going to continue against a raise, whether that's a re-raise or whether that's a call because I've underrepresented, I've opened the door. If they're a thinking player, they should be raising here quite a bit out of the big blind. So I think ace nine is is still playable at this point. Yeah, I don't. I mean, the three bet obviously it can it can knock out any garbage that the big blind is doing this with. But there is, um, I'm not sure I want to inflate this pot a lot with ace nine off because I am very likely um, the the hands that I'm ahead of I just want to call, and the hands that I'm behind are uh, maybe going to shove it back in my face which i'm not gonna like at all so i'm well, yeah i'm, I'm probably with, flatting this with the three the bet you're basically turning your hand into a bluff at that point and just trying to take it down right there because you're probably only going to get called by things that have you that have more equity in the pot than you do yeah, I think the only reason the only reason it would it would work against a certain villain is if you were otherwise in a position where you had to just check call all the way down to the river and you could end up losing more chips than those 16 big blinds or whatever it would be. Um, because as you say, you're folding to a four bet here that's going to come from, you know, ace 10 plus anyway, and you can you can limit your losses in a way to that because uh, this is one of those spots we talk about these all the time. Where you're, you 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 call pre-flop, you get an ace. It's not a very good kicker, and now it's like, all right, well, I guess I just have to check call all the way down and and realize my equity against his bluffs. Um, the times when I don't leave the tournament today, <laughs> and uh, um, I'm always curious. There's there must there's like the sweet spot in the stacks where um, if you could if you had enough confidence in his response to your raise then you could actually fold and and sleep well that night not ever knowing what his cards were but that you know you got away from it for for less than having to get get in by the river talk about derailing conversations right. i don't know how to handle that but this this is the this little dialect this little issue there comes up to me all the time in these spots so in in real life uh cool likes to call so we go to the flop um um, and the flop is the four of clubs, the king of diamonds, and the six of diamonds. Um, as as Ku, we we elect to check, which I think makes sense after that uh, three bet in the call, and the big blind continues for thirty six hundred. Again, we have ace of spades, nine of clubs. Yeah, What's I mean, anyone for, doing? For, for me, as play, that's just uh, that's just an easy fold. I check fold that all day uh, to that continuation, but I have no, I mean, other than an ace and bluff catching, you know, I guess it, it might depend on the, I mean, the player again, a little bit. Uh, if if we know that they will shut down after a flop bet doesn't work, if they're, if they, if they're a stabber, like a one bullet stabber, they take a stab and then they shut down maybe, but I'm, I'm on a position here. Like I, I'm check folding this. Isn't it? We've just created this spot for him that incentivize, uh, like he's so incentivized to bluff here, though, right? Oh, because I'm sure he it's, is. A, it's a bluff heavy board. We've yep. capped our range by limping and calling. It's what king six four. King like six, four, if yeah. I had, if I had ten seven, 
like I'm I'm probably see betting that in position uh, just because sure so so few of the small blinds hands uh, come along with it. So then, uh, yeah. But the, but then yeah, I, I don't disagree that we. I think we were ahead of a good chunk of his range here still. And we're just I don't, I don't disagree with that. But yeah. then what are we going to do in the turn when an eight peels off? Yeah. Then we're going to fold yeah. there. If he continues, then what if it does? You know, I mean, that's the part that gets me is like, and if I hit an ace, am I going to extract value? Like, right. maybe, maybe he keeps coming, but he probably shuts it down if he doesn't have a better ace. I don't know. I, I just, for me, that's the spot is like, it's kind of gross. Yeah, I, I don't disagree that we could still be ahead of a chunk of his range. It's how far am I willing to go here with ace high, you know, where the guy's showing aggression on every single street. Right. But there are a lot of players, though, who, I mean, there's, you say every street, there's two streets. He's made a bet and a continuation bet. And there's a lot of players that are going to do that, uh, especially when they raise the limp on the flop. They're almost going to continuation bet True. for near everything. Um, we still hold an ace. So I think it really comes down to if we think we are still reasonably ahead and if we've played with the player before, there's a lot of players who are going to shut down on the turn. So um, by making a call here on the flop, we're likely to see two cards and mm-hmm. get to the river. So um, I don't mind calling in this spot, particularly with a smaller bet size uh, like that. It, mm-hmm. I think well, that's probably what I would do. And this is where, I mean, I, I've picked up this in my arsenal or tried to add this intentionally. This is, to me, the check raise on the flop is, this is the kind of board where, it's a, to me, it's a perfect spot for me to check raise here. Um, and then I find out where I'm at 100%. I mean, because I really don't have any equity in the thing at all. I've got a lot of kings in my range that just complete and then call. Uh, you know, I can shut her down after that. Uh, but it's going to work a lot, if I, especially like if, if I think he's continuing with all of his stuff. It's pretty hard for him to continue without at least, you know, middle pair uh, or better, I think. So I, I kind of like a check raise here, uh, even more so than preflop. Hmm. All right, if you check raise here and he calls. Gig is up. You're done? You're done I'm with done. the hand? I'm done. I'm taking my stab because uh, he's, he's shown me now that he actually must have something here at this point. And are you – so then are you, if you're check raising in, in this spot, then you're – uh, also, check raising. I yean yeah, are you king, check raising king, your nine, kings? King, yeah. king, king ten, king nine. Okay. Yep, and and my sets maybe even, uh, okay. and my sets maybe even, because uh, I'm trying to build a pot at that point. We got sixty bigs. I want to get in the middle with that that sort of a hand. Plus, there's a flush draw out there. I think you want to be getting yeah. some some value in against those draws. Mm-hmm. So what I what I really um, I think Steve, I'm I'm with you on this spot is a spot I think I fold a lot. Um, and what I really like about this play, I think is, um, is that this does feel like one of those hands. That's a really good float. Um, I think you have, um, what I like about this flop is it's, it's, um, it's sort of dry, but it's also very connected so that I think as coup, we are in position, I think we have um, probably more diamonds. We certainly have more um, straight draws. So I think on any, you know, seven, any eight, any three, any diamond, any five, there are a lot of hands that 
um, I think are going to be very scary for our opponent. And um, even though we have nothing close to it in our hand, it's something that is attached to our range a lot more, which is why I really, um, as I saw this play, I really liked, so who did call? He called the the bet. And it's a play I don't think I ever do or ever make. And I, I, I really do like it um, because of this board. That's so interesting. So that that's that's enlightening to me. So it makes sense. So you're not just floating. You're, you're in floating in part because your ace high could be good. That's part of the reason you could float here. But you're also floating from a representation perspective of there's a lot of turn cards that don't hit my ace or nine, but are going to be great cards for me to now represent a hand that my opponent probably can't represent. Yeah, Is that, that, yeah I, that's, that's exactly that's what I'm tremendous, saying. Chris. I like that. Well, it's not, I mean, I think it's tremendous from Koo, like, because to be honest with you, like, well, you put it together. I think I, I think I snap fold this, but I really yeah. like this play. And it's one that I'm like, I'm really trying to think about um, as like, how, how can I incorporate this into how I look at a board and think about it on that level? Um, so Koo does call and the turn is the five of diamonds. Um, and I think this is less, uh, less interesting. So in the turn, uh, we decide, although it is, it, now we have a, a four, five, six, and we've got three diamonds. Um, Ku still elects to check here. I don't know what his plan would be uh, if the big blind bet. I, I, I anticipate, based on how he played this, that it would have been a check raise. Um, but the big blind checks back. Um, and then um, the river is the three of spades. So we have... Uh, 61k behind. There's 17k in the pot. We now have a board of three of spades or four of clubs, king of diamonds, six of diamonds, five of diamonds, and three of spades. Um, and what are you doing? <laughs> well, I think I think as played, you have to take a stab here. I mean, I think you can represent so many different things. I I wouldn't have thought of it before as far as setting up the float to represent a run out like this. But if I somehow stumbled my way into a, a run out like this, uh, I think you just have to take a stab. I think there's just a very little chance. Your, your ace high could be good for sure, but I think it's a, it's more likely that they have some sort of a, a pair that you can push off or something. So I, I think you take a stab here for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once you get to this point, it sort of becomes more obvious, but seeing this on the flop is the, is I think, the key step that or the key thing as I was watching this hand that like you have to see that this is possible on the flop to get there. And so Ku does bet out 11 K uh, and the big blind folds a six. Um, but um, I, I really, I really love that play. And I think it's, it's a, an example of how you can accumulate chips in a pretty cheap way, but one which is really hard to defend as an opponent. Well, so, that's one thing that Koo does constantly is I'm just amazed at watching it, him, how often he is and how much pressure he is able to put on opponents while keeping the pot small. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> well, cause, because I, we're, we're talking about how much pressure he put on an opponent and he made one aggressive action. Right. <laughs> I mean, all right. he did was, all he did was call all the way to the river and then, uh, when the, when it was favorable, he took one aggressive action. And I guess kind of you guys' point about not three betting anywhere, just sort of keeping the pot small, maybe that's your point too, John, is that it allows him to apply pressure 
without having to like shove in 60 K he can apply pressure with an 11 K bet. Yep. Yeah, his his passive actions are certainly helped by the runout here. Of course, like I think in a different runout, that the argument wouldn't look as good. Um, but certainly, once once you get to this point, I think I think it's just like the is if you could script it <laughs> for for some passive play earlier in the hand. It's one of those spots where it actually does. I think his range is just much stronger now. Well, it's um, kind of like what, what John said, you know, in the interview, like it's sort of this integrated strategy, right? I mean, he kept the pot small, so a different run outcome. So queen, jack, it runs out queen, jack, diamond, diamond, or something like that. I mean, he can just fold and he hasn't invested very much. So it's sort of this, he's setting himself up to be able to take a stab at a run out that's favorable for him, whether because of hand equity or because of what he can represent. And he's coupling that with a low, uh, you know, keeping a pot control sort of situation where he can just fold bad run outs. And maybe get to show it on with ace high. Right. And what I love about this too is that there there are just so many good runouts right now. Like there's so many cards that can hit this flop that are going to be very scary for your opponent. Um, and sh- yeah, I think if a bunch of face cards come, um, you know, we're just we're just ejecting and we're done. Um, and we've only invested a number thirty another thirty six hundred chips, but. Um, it's it's a cool play, and it's it's one of these that I don't think, I don't think it probably you know if people were watching this table, there were a lot of splashy big hands and big pots, and you know st- somebody has set versus two pair, and a lot of chips go in the middle, and I don't think you sort of pay attention to these kind of hands enough, but these are the kind of hands that I think you can start to to really accumulate chips um, in very quiet ways. Well, and it's the type of thing that it, it it looks like Ku is just being a wild maniac, but there is a lot more thought process behind it. And he also has the skill to read the players he's playing with and can find opportunities that maybe other people miss. Yep, yep, exactly. So we we had early on in the early days of rec poker. This is way back way back when you can you can trust me. It's one of the early episodes. We had Kuvang on. Uh, you know we tried to get him back on, but he's like, I don't want to give away my secrets. We're doing it anyway, Koo. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're reverse engineering what you're doing, and we're giving away your secrets. So ha ha ha, we'll show you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. someday someday I'll beat that guy, man. I've I've played him like so many times. He's taken so many chips from me. I, I still don't know all his secrets. And how great of a dude is he? I mean, I know this yeah. isn't what we're trying, but just a phenomenal dude. At least in in my world, as my interactions with him. Uh, just a fantastic ambassador for the game too. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks to Bernard Lee for joining us. Thanks to the panel. A fantastic conversation. Chris Jones, Jim Reed, John Somsky, Rob Washerman, myself, Steve Fredland. Uh, next week, uh, we'll have Brad Wilson from Chasing Poker Greatness. Uh, he'll be on the show. Uh, we're going to close off here. We got all of our announcements at the end. So if you want to know what's going on with Rec Poker, more details, stay tuned here uh, after, the, after we close off. But that is the end of our content. Have a great week on and off the felt. Welcome to the announcements section for the Rec Poker Podcast. You're going to hear all about our free stuff, how you can support us, the products available for purchase, products from our affiliates, how to connect further, and how to reach us. 
There are five main ways to engage for free. You can play our Poker Stars home games the first and second Wednesday of every month at 8 o'clock Central Time. You can join us on Discord for all kinds of great conversation and virtual railing. We have the Facebook group that's always open for discussion. You can follow us on Twitter at Rec Poker, where we have all kinds of cool stuff posted and we keep you, keep you up to speed on everything going on. And you can join our email list to get our weekly newsletter, Twerp, this week in Rec Poker. There are also five ways that you can support us. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month, and it'll give you a chance to sit in on the podcast. You can like, rate, review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you hear the podcast. You can share, retweet, comment on Facebook and Twitter. You can rep the brand. We got merchandise available. And most of all, you can let other people know about us. There are five main Rec Poker products currently available to purchase. You can get a membership for $10 a month or $100 a year to get access to all of our content and our other discussions. You can join the Bar League community, which is $300 a year, but only $100 a year if you join by March 31st. You can become part of the Home Game community, which is $100 a year, but only $40 a year if you join by March 31st. You can submit videos for analysis by your choice of coaches, or you can get personal one-on-one coaching with your choice of coaches. We are currently building up our affiliate program, and right now, we are an affiliate for Learn Pro Poker. You can use our code and get some discounts and special deals. Go to rec.poker and look for Learn Pro Poker. If you want to connect further and engage more deeply, you can do so by becoming an ambassador, by representing Rec Poker in a specific area. You can become an affiliate, which helps spread the word and sell products. You can become a champion, where you promote the brand, you wear the merch, you're active on social media, and you have a chance to refer products for a commission. Or you can be just a friend of Rec Poker and help us spread the word that way. You can also become a sponsor of the podcast, some of our events, or all things Rec Poker. There's several ways that you can reach out to contact us if you need to. Rec.Poker, Discord, email newsletter, Twerp, Facebook, Twitter. But you can get all the information at Rec.Poker or just email me, Steve, at Rec.Poker. Thanks once again to our official sponsor, Running Aces Racetrack Casino and Hotel, who has supported us since episode number one. Also, thanks to Learn Pro Poker and Website Amp. Make it a great week, everybody.